well, welcome back, uh, Pavlos. It's good to see you here again. Yes, it's good to be back. Um, I think the last time I was on was for uh, Talking Heads yes. episode. Uh, Stop making sense. And yes. the podcast turned into a music music podcast for for a while there as well. Um, uh, I mean, that that's episode. that's always the case, you know. We turned it into a breakfast podcast one time where you were on. So uh, it's nice to be back to movies, though. Hmm. Yeah, I thought this week we could do. Uh, this time we could do like a ballet segment at the end. Talk about yeah. some <laughs> some of our favorite ballet. Oh, uh, talk about? Oh, I thought you meant like like put on like a Swan Lake performance here, but between us, I I think that'd oh, yeah. be way more interesting. My tutu, my tutu, I got it on. But I will, I'll show it later though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. We'll see. Is Calvin after. here? Is did we lose Calvin? Uh, We're back for the big one twenty. <laughs> Oh. Is it is it 120 this week? Wow. Yeah. But yeah, this week we have a, a, a litany of topics to to go over. So we probably shouldn't beat around them too much. Uh I don't know if it'll make mm-hmm. it in, but Pavlos, you you express sadness that I'm not covering a documentary this week, as as I've been doing for quite some time now. But yeah, because yeah. I have I have a new movie to talk about for once. A uh, new movie. A new movie. Uh, from which year? 1973. But <laughs> it's 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 being released for the first time, so it's it's still mm. new. Uh yes, I've I suppose I've deci- I'll let that count. I've decided to make it my specialty between this and uh covering the other side of the wind back in twenty eighteen that uh I need to cover all the movies that are being newly released from directors who are now deceased. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and this week we happen to be getting the revival of a lost uh, George A. Romero film called *The Amusement Park*. It was a f- uh, film that was uh, commissioned by him uh, for him from a, a Lutheran society uh, about uh, kind of the prevalent issue of elder abuse and the you know mistreatment of. Uh, senior citizens by by younger people of the world and whatnot and what Romero delivered was ultimately something a little more uh, surrealist and uh, you know uh, horrifying I guess for for the Lutheran society than they were expecting and so they refused to release it it was was really meant as like a PSA for television and it feels like that certainly Uh, it opens with uh, kind of like a very open you know uh, conversation towards the audience um you know, remarking on the issues that all the the elderly people of today face, and it kind of ends with the same uh, reaffirming note. But in between is this kind of bizarre, otherworldly, uh, you know, melange of uh, situations within this otherworldly amusement park that uh, the the main el- uh, older man is uh, kind of going through and experiences all these bizarre Mm -hmm. happenstances that uh definitely echo a lot of his uh social horror you know kind of uh tendencies from the time with films like uh dawn of the dead uh and the crazies and whatnot so he wasn't commissioned to make a feature he was it's it's a feature in the sense that it's like an hour long but it's it's not a feature in a in a traditional sense it was meant as a psa but uh not like in a traditional sense either it's still a narrative film mm, so. um, but just bookended by you know audience addresses that more explicitly spell out what the themes of the actual film are mm. how does the lutheran society um 
you know, fall on like, you know, just decide on Romero as their <laughs> go-to guy for this. Like, I'm, what did they expect? They, yeah, I'm very curious. Maybe, maybe they were thinking Eric Romer, and I was like, Romer, <laughs> Romero, ah, damn it. I see well, a mistake there. Yes. Well, he, yeah. he was a prolific commercial artist uh, up until that point. Like, he directed lots of commercials for the area, uh, and it was only, like, five years before when he made Night of the Living Dead, uh, which really launched, you know, kicked off his, uh, you know, uh, narrative career more so. But, you know, he had a couple other films under his belt at that point. So it's not like, I, I can't imagine they were entirely ignorant to him. Like, they must have come across because of that. And w with the actual material, too, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you would think that they were hoping for something along the lines of what he ultimately made. But then when they saw it, they were just uh, utterly, like like, taken aback by you know the, what it is and i don't personally yeah. personally I don't, I don't find it like as utterly horrifying as uh some <laughs> you know some of his other works like night of the living dead but those themes the balance of of uh social commentary you know flavored with um you know the kind of horror uh visualizations and such you know throughout the film is think is very reminiscent of his other works at the time and um a really interesting aspect uh, and insight into his sensibilities from that era um, and something that his later work okay. certainly reflected less over time. Definitely nice news for Romero heads. Yeah. And uh, always, always good to, you know, when these films are unearthed that were believed uh, lost. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it yeah, very exciting to, to rejoice to see that and to, of course, you know, every time a film is uh, rediscovered and restored and put back out there in the world, uh, it's it's worth celebrating. It's a great cause to highlight, uh, particularly we're... from someone who, who's already a very treasured filmmaker, uh, you know, to find that there's more work out there from them when, you know, the, the sadness of their passing means that there is nothing left for them to pursue, I think is always very interesting and always gonna get a buzz going. I think we're very hopeful that the opportunity of these streamers will provide you with even more outlets for this kind of writing because i know you like to write historically about film and i think it's a good avenue when they I resurrect do, these projects all we can hope is for uh more important directors to start dying off so that we can discover some other films they have hiding in their basement so i can eventually cover them uh soon yeah sooner they die the better for, so uh scorsese we're looking at you next no <laughs> Not wishing yeah. death on Scorsese yet. I've already signed the contract, you know. Is it already in the mail? Oof. I don't anyway, uh, happy uh, 92nd birthday to Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are we starting a death pool? What are we doing? <laughs> we must have other movies. I'm really afraid, afraid to say any more because... You know, it could be the case. You never know. <laughs> we don't want to come back next week having to do a, a Clint Eastwood just because of what's happened. Um, because we caused the death of Clint Eastwood. Yeah. If we do, it yeah. has to be the Deadpool, obviously. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, a place where a lot of dead directors go It's the uh, Criterion Collection. Um, that's where they all are, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Oh, well, not all of them, but let's say. A lot of them. And, many uh, many dead directors uh, can be found there, directors. certainly. Um, maybe an increasing number of still living directors. 
but I don't know if it's increasing actually. But uh... I, I, I think they're trying to. Obviously, they're working with more, and, and when they have their like deals with Netflix and stuff, I think that number is going to increase. But obviously, they're still focusing on their swath of dead directors within the collection as well. So, you know, right. it's probably a, a good, healthy balance currently of alive and dead directors. Right. Uh, you know, a healthy balance being more dead directors, which I agree. That's yeah. Not, that, that's a healthy balance. Um, <laughs> uh, and, well, obviously Criterion has been, you know, very like a mm, pretty prestigious publisher, uh, even though there's, of course, many publishers out there doing uh, great work. But, um, you know, they've kind of built a brand, brand for themselves and also are... Uh, you know, one of the few here who have like a streaming service, uh, their own streaming service, which certainly helps with, um, yeah, with their brand. And um, uh, I'm now a, a, a member <laughs> of that uh, streaming that's, service. That's fantastic. We love to hear that, that we've, we've pulled you into the eclectic circle here of Criterion Channel subscribers. I've still got yes, my medal card. I'm literally a card carrying member of Criterion. Same. Same. Day <laughs> one. Day one subscriber. When do I get my card? Uh, Never. You gotta uh, go back in time and sign up uh, uh, when yeah. they first announced it. For <laughs> the pre-order bonus. Um, uh, yeah, as well as a discount. We also we pay less for it now than you. Mm. Uh, well, uh, I, obviously, I've always been an advocate for movie here which uh, has many uh, there's a lot of overlap there mm -hmm. um they sort of i think license stuff from from uh criterion i don't Janus, know exactly what, i don't know exactly what the relationship is but oh, oh, either way of... there's a lot of overlap in terms yeah. of like also the features and like for example stuff that left movie or is leaving movie is like often slated to leave criterion uh, channel the next mm -hmm. month like it's very Synch uh, very synchronized like that so it must have something there must be some relation on the business end but I, th I think it has a lot to do with like the streaming rights and what the who whoever owns them whoever long they're willing to lease something for and they probably lease them to both criterion and movie and even other ones because i noticed similar uh synchronicities between some stuff that pops up on like amazon mm -hmm. on occasion it'll mm -hmm. like disappear at the same time it goes off the criterion channel if they both happen to have them i see okay yeah yeah maybe just um maybe just film companies going like you know this film will be on streaming on all streaming until the state and then mm. we're pulling it uh either way uh i kicked um i kicked netflix for it which uh had the goal to increase their price once again and obviously i was already just i was just using it because it was a shared account so it was very cheap but even those five, six euros a month, I thought weren't worth it for basically what it represents, <laughs> but also their offering, offering. but um, just, uh, you know, it's getting too dominant in the at least popular, uh, like, uh, movie discourse and uh, um, kind of at least in the film space, kind of based on little to nothing. I mean, they've shifted mm -hmm. sort of to TV anyway. Uh, we talked about this last time. Anyway, um, so I thought, you know, put my put the, my money where my mouth is, and uh, um, you know, obviously always gonna support movie, but um, 
been sub to Criterion for a year as well now, and I feel very satisfied. is uh, is a great off a great catalog, obviously, and um, um, already perused it uh, quite a bit. Uh, had a and I just quickly wanted to give like some uh, to quickly talk about a couple of stuff, that, uh, a couple of things that I watched, some stuff there. Um, I watched uh, the um, collaborations between Josef von Sternberg and Malini Dietrich uh, from the 30s, mm -hmm. uh, which were uh, very interesting. I obviously had a lot of, we talked quite a bit about it with uh, David. Uh, very interesting films, uh, very interesting filmmaker. Um, films themselves, no, like, none of them, like, um, sort of... Uh, knockouts in a like traditional sense in the sense that you know sort of no like really one film that's like really round and like uh you know like really <laughs> yeah um, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to call any of them like a, a classic uh in any strict means uh they're they're more interesting certainly for what they they accomplish you know on a moment-to-moment -moment basis than as a cohesive whole um, yeah, not, not as cohesive, um, but very interesting and much uh, and and sort of elements of them certainly much more interesting than many other films that uh, some people might call classics. Um, so definitely worth worth a watch. Uh, very interesting filmmaker again, and mm -hmm. I will certainly watch watch more uh, of his work. Um, uh, I watched the, I watched those. Uh, there was certainly, obviously, a couple like one-offs or like sort of stuff that was like uh, sort of um, kind of more out there. Uh, I but I did start as an next project. I, I watched a couple of noirs, which I want to mention. I watched um, Detour and uh, Gun Crazy, mm -hmm. um, which were also very interesting watches. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, a film by a filmmaker that we're going to talk later today is a uh, pretty um, pretty clear uh, detour, um, sort of paraphrase, uh, cool. references <laughs> detour quite a bit. Um, I love Gun Crazy. Stylish and so sexy, and it just looks so nice. Yeah, I think I think I have definitely some reservations with Gun Crazy, especially in the second half, but also I thought was also really good. Uh, Detour uh, also, especially the ca camera was especially the camera. I thought was really fantastic. Great first um, half, at least, absolutely. But and I think Detour is yeah. Detour is a, a great one as well because I think it's uh, that's a very recent restoration that was done for it mm -hmm. uh, that's now available on the Criterion Channel, and a film I'm pretty sure that will uh, perennially be on there because it's uh, a part of the. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't have any leasing rights anymore. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. I'm forgetting the term. So, you, it, so you've been able to view like shitty prints of it forever on like YouTube and Amazon or wherever, but this new right. restoration is going to be uh, available licensed mostly through Criterion. So that's yeah. nice that, that you're able to see that. And it looks great now. It's a uh, you know great little, very expedient noir. It's like an hour long, um, which yes. is really nice. Really, yeah, really uh, lean film and... Uh... Yeah, interesting sort of concept. Also, but uh, you know, again, some reservations. It's not a top. It's definitely top a, shelf noir, but it's a good. It's a good, B, it's a good B noir, like was 
sort of like the noir itself is sort of you know a B film uh, mm -hmm. historically uh, this is sort of a the B of the B um, yeah which uh, yeah so uh, yeah uh, very very much worth watching of course the Criterion Channel overall um, you know still very American focused uh, it's got you know there's a lot of uh, um, certain a lot of noirs a lot of westerns um, another um, um, sort of uh, you know important um, or landmark uh, American it's, directors represented uh, but of course it's a you know it's an American publisher so the, the catalog is also matter. generally varied uh, on what they bring month to month like they at least have a, a good spectrum even if it does skew more American a lot of times and it gives a lot of exposure for you know and again like it's, it's one of the few places here where you can view non-American films very very easily and important films sure. from, from around the world yeah, obviously, I always say it relatively in the sense yeah. that America, that you know, the USA is one country out of many. We, so, we can uh, we, we can always use the that, reminder. Our licensing yeah. just so much easier in the US. So. Yes, no, I think that's it's a, a huge it's an American factor. Company, of course, so. yeah, yeah, it's American companies. So like, but, uh, it's not surprising. As far as like the diversity that... goes, movie and Criterion are really winning that battle. Yes, absolutely. I think movies, in terms of the uh, really, the spread is yeah. uh, uh, is even better. I don't know if ours are different, but it seems better to me too. Yeah, it's a bit better with the spread, but also obviously it it's a smaller catalog, mm -hmm. and so um, of course Criterion has a bigger catalog because it can fall back on, like you said, easy licensing, and that easy licensing will be generally probably Ameri more American. Uh, films so well, they, they also uh, get to pull a lot yeah. from their own collection you know as well and the licensing yes, yes. at least the ones they have available which it seems like it's, they hold a lot it's a yeah it's, it's a it's advantage right like they're able to cram in those extras and uh, everything they yeah. work on on the side of course great features to have sure. with stuff so did you get to, sure did you get to view many of the supplemental materials yet on the criterion channel not just the stuff that no, comes on like, the disc uh, did, are you asking me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't really checked them out now, but uh, I'm also not kind of not the, not that I'm opposed to them by any means or anything. Like I think it's great to have, of course, but uh, not not much. Just not big of big. Not a big like extra fan. Extras. Yeah. What? Not a fan. I'm I'm glad that I think it's great that stuff is there. And in fact, every time I do check something out, it's you know. It's, it's it's interesting or like yeah, unless it's like that very sort of you know commercial uh making off stuff that it's like basically an ad, a giant ad <laughs> not that stuff but if it's like a third party sort of you know i mean i know they also have like film essays and sort of um their own little little documentaries with like their own talking heads on it and stuff on these films so no i think that's that's definitely it's definitely nice to have, even though I'm not, I'm not the yeah. primary audience for it. But um, all, uh, last thing I want to mention here is, um, yeah, uh, also, I, I did want to agree first with Calvin that, yes, uh, the um, uh, the focus on or like the, the sort of bigger presence of American film is in the case of Criterion Channel is not to the detriment of, uh, of you know, other other. Uh, of, of other world cinema that's the that's mm -hmm. what you know that's that's uh 
what um, you know doesn't doesn't make it like um, problematic or anything. Um, uh, yeah, and the last and probably going to be like uh, I had to sort of pause it for the stuff that we're going to talk about today, but um, I will resume soon. Is my watches of uh, Sturgis films, which <laughs> I can't watch on Criterion Channel anymore. But I did start the project because they left at the end of last month. But yeah. I did start the project at least, and you could say you know that was a gateway into his films. Of course, Preston mm -hmm. Sturgis, big big. Um, uh, show favorite. Uh, I was very yes. surprised by some of them. Hail the Conquering Hero and Unfaithfully Yours, especially. I had big expectations for the others, but uh, those two, especially, I wasn't looking at, possibly mm. because of their unassuming names. Hail the Conquering Hero, I thought would be one kind of movie. It wasn't. It was much it... better. <laughs> Unfaithfully Yours, I thought it would be something else, but it's really a movie about like how music drives us creatively and just so special, that whole oh. filmography. Those are both films. Someone who's faithfully yours. <laughs> Unfaithfully. Those are both films I would love to talk about here sometime, so I won't go too much into them, but I'm I'm very excited that they were able to be seen so much more easily by people. They were films that I uh, had to watch first by hunting them down from, from rental places, um, mm -hmm. which were which, so, you know, a little I, tougher. Yeah, I think uh, the moral is don't go to rental places. Just wait no. for <laughs> Eventually, they'll add, the they'll add literally everything yeah. that you're looking for. <laughs> but now, uh, and and for for both of you guys to take to Sturgis, I think is is fantastic. Uh, you know, when I showed Calvin back a while ago with Sullivan's Travels and the podcast we did on that, and, and kind of started that, and then you, Pavlos as well, checking out these films here. Uh, very ecstatic about it because Sturgis has certainly been a filmmaker I've fallen more and more in love with uh the more i've watched his films and i'm currently am uh neck deep into a another biography on him and mm -hmm. enjoying it greatly so he's he's been very much on my mind uh as of recently with everyone watching and talking about him and me reading about him all at the same time well yeah. from the greatest streaming service in the world to uh netflix specials we're looking <laughs> at um there there were a couple problems with things i wanted to cover this week I wanted to look at uh, Cruella, which is on uh, Disney Plus, of course, um, with a $30 uh, addition to your $10. Ouch, still? <laughs> yeah, so if you want to pay $40 to watch Cruella. My screener experience was very bad because it played half the movie. Um, and nothing happens in the first 40 minutes. So I, I got about 20 minutes of viable movie or, you know, like 20, Wait, 30 that's minutes. that's not true. A tragic death of uh, <laughs> the death by puppies, death okay. by Dalmatian puppies. Yeah, some Dalmatian, some CG that. ass looking Dalmatians <laughs> drop kick her mother off a bridge when. I didn't really call it CG anymore because, uh, I mean, there's CG, is... but everything else is CG. So they, even the environments like, and some of the people in like, scenes are CG. I mean. I don't even know if there was a camera involved to learn. It's not, <laughs> not just like a digital, uh, like a, like an animation film, basically. Well, it's and very strange because, in because everything film. is like that. It's like the camera just floats through. Um, it's like there's not really a plane that it exists on. But I also watch as Zack Snyder's um, The Army of the Dead, uh, going back to like a Romero-esque thing, which I don't really want to talk about <laughs> because... It was so dark I couldn't fucking see the screen. Can can you really say you saw the movie then if you yes. couldn't see anything? I, At least I believe that one I, I hear has actual camera work, which uh, yeah, very amateurish. I think calling it camera <laughs> work is really overselling the whole thing because it's really just shallow <laughs> focus and like the whole like 
it's like the depth of field on a video game is real fucked on the slider. It's you can't see shit. I mean, I it, you can't tell who's talking to who. You don't know why someone's in a scene. People are digitally added afterward, so kind of the same yeah. thing as the CG Dalmatians. It, it's funny hearing about like his his choices because he's the cinematographer for the film as well for the first <laughs> yes. time. I've I've not watched the film and won't and have no intention of doing so. But yeah. uh, like the the choice that he bought these like lenses from the 1960s that have this, from Japan, uh, yeah, these yeah, for these really intentional, and he throws them onto these digital cameras, which he's also using for the first time, <laughs> except for like parts of the Snyder cut I think he shot digital and then yeah. like you can't and then everything is so out of focus in it and and it's like an intentional choice by him to make it more dreamlike and it's just like like a, a director given total authority completely run amok there's <laughs> something about it where you went into Justice League and he did that one extra scene with the Joker and they're out in the desert and it's the shallow focus lens and it's supposed to be a nightmare dream but if your whole movie is that it it loses any meaning within a scene. I, Not every I, scene could be that depth. Well, I think you need to separate that and actually look at why you're making these choices. Actually, I think this might be a good thing for, for Zach's really director here. Yeah, because uh, if he keeps going down this path, then uh, hopefully uh, there won't be anything to see in his films at all. Okay, you don't. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like, no, I absolutely don't either. There's nothing of merit there. So, mm, I mean, you can, you can buy... Uh, anything but you can't buy talent so no. uh, and usually the you know talented directors in the history of film you know didn't really need anything uh like you know so, amazing films have been made on the smallest of budgets and the craziest of conditions and you know the, you can't you cannot buy talent generally i feel that we're putting so much stock into a uh, Netflix not being able to pr produce these things with these uh, tour-like directors. I'm laughing calling Snyder any kind of a tour. I, I mean, uh, I, I someone think with he, the vision. Vulgar, uh, but by the general definition, I think he qualifies. We, we just, you know, we may not want to, uh, yeah. you know, we're just resistant to applying such a, yeah. a haughty title to him. <laughs> right. But... So he's a vulgar author, but there's something about it where Netflix is allowing these freedoms to their directors. And now we have Bo Burnham. <laughs> who has taken um, his own film. He is, of course, the star of the film, the director, the editor, the writer, uh, the whole cast list. You go on Letterboxd. It's entirely Bo Burnham. Um, so there's there's one guy out there doing creative things with uh, this uh, unlimited focus, which is just going on Netflix and sitting in your room, putting the camera on and showing what the fucking world has been like and how fucking bad it is and how bad everything feels and how you just want to blow your brains out at the end of a pandemic. Um, none of it feels fucking good. It's about being a white man, how what you say doesn't matter and how we've already added too much to the conversation and how we all react too quickly without thinking about it and without listening and without like processing what whatever's happening online. Um, I almost feel emotional just describing it because it was such a thing for me, like sitting through it. I didn't laugh fucking once, but, but I fucking felt things the whole movie. Um, which is, I think, what I asked for, right? I want to feel something or I want to be moved or I want it to be necessary. I want what I watch to actually mean something to me, but like carry it out of the theater or the screen and be like, okay, this, this is something I want to go talk about and I feel moved to write about it. Or I'm thinking about things in a different way. Like I'm, I'm thinking about how I could limit my internet time and not, not react so strongly to anything that's on the internet. Uh, 
I think about how that like instant gauge, like in our head, just um, we want to respond so quickly and we want to have the right response, one that sounds good. And we want it to sound like we're clever and all that, but, uh, but what are we saying? And if we're just white straight guys, do we need to even be in the conversation? Um, is it even enough for us to performatively accept like these things and be like, yeah, I understand your position. I'm going to go online and like spearhead it. Or uh, should we just uh, defer the platform to people who need to talk? Like this is stuff that really matters that I don't see handled well in comedy often. So I'm Wouldn't just you have not made weird. the film in that case? What was that? Wouldn't you not have made That's the, the thing. in that case? He spends 20 <laughs> minutes talking about how he's a white guy trying to shut the fuck up. And then he spends, he admits it that he's going to spend the next 70 minutes not doing that. So uh, okay. uh, a little irony in that, but he knows it and he admits it. But, but after he, that, yeah. <laughs> after that, he fucking goes. After that, he goes. I, I think there's some some merit to that idea. This this being caught kind of in a in a wedge here of not sure sure like knowing that more important voices need to be heard and that right. the the weight of of a a non minority person's voice is is less significant right now than than others because it's been so dominant in in history and so overbearing and uh, you know for for such a long time. But at the same time, like you know the it's important to kind of like the the importance of using that power to uplift other voices or Absolutely. knowing when to get out of the way it's like it's not a very clear yeah. thing and because it's such a contentious issue in you know today's society so much right now uh it can it can be stressful even for the people who you know who really aren't at the center of of our greatest woes uh as yeah. of this moment so yeah I, I see how that's that's an interesting uh issue to be to be kind of tackling there and, and one that you know I guess we, one of the few that white men are uniquely qualified to, to kind of grapple with. Absolutely. I think, it, I think it just has a lot of merit too. Like uh, not so much as a comedy special because there are no laughs. Uh, you'd probably be more likely to cry than laugh. Uh, but as experimental film on a streaming service and what that opportunity allows you to do, I think it's interesting. Uh, not, a, not his best work either. I like his stand up a lot more than this uh, because of those things, those admissions and kind of the feeling that a, uh, it's it's really messy as he admits in the movie uh half the songs don't really work for me but uh, the ones that do fucking on point and some of the great stuff this year I, I love parts of it he's always been interesting in, in his comedy for me i'm i'm excited yeah. to get to it i just haven't had the, the the chance yet but i keep hearing interesting things about it and it just makes me want to go go check it out still um absolutely you know so i'm interested uh, i'm also interested to see how he he returns to the screen as a director. Yeah, I know. Uh, eighth eighth grade, grade, promising yeah. start, and but... then he was pretty good in Promising Young Woman, which I which I didn't really love, but <laughs> I, I liked him in it. He made a good boyfriend, comedic boyfriend. Yeah, you like the white guy in the uh, film about? Uh, yeah, the only thing I liked about <laughs> it female empowerment. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's coming off great, but it's true. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a break on that note. All right, sounds All good. Right. We'll come back. Let's uh, play some music by a white guy. Uh, <laughs> oh, Burnham. <laughs> Let's hear the sirens again, David. <laughs> Could I interest you in everything all of the time? A little bit of everything all of the time. Apathy's a tragedy and boredom is a crime. Anything and everything all of the time. Could I interest you in everything all of the time? A little bit of everything all of the time. Apathy's a tragedy and boredom is a crime. Of the time. Yeah, it's, it's very perturbing. Anyway, welcome back. <laughs> welcome back to the show. This is going to be a big episode this time, isn't it? 
so many topics to cover. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, appropriately, I have some some epic films for our epic podcast this week. Are they though? Oh uh, yeah, I I think you can qualify them as as they 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 are certainly gargantuan. Uh, they're very they're, large. Yeah, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, so let's see which one which one do do I talk about first? Intolerance. Mm, intolerance. Okay. Yeah. Intolerance. Intolerance. Uh, on a whim, on a whim the other day, I finally watched this this mammoth of a D.W. Griffith film, 1916. His his big apologia for birth of a nation. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's that is in fact not what it is. If anything. It's the opposite. Oh no! Is it yeah. like a continuation of, uh, of like no, those same problematic parts? No, oh, it isn't. It isn't mean, a pause via. It, well, is, it is one. In the, it's a. It's a defense, uh, yeah. which is yeah. what the word means. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, it's I not used an apology. Right. <laughs> yeah. I I used the correct word. I just used it wrong. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> you didn't believe in yourself. You're right. But yeah, an apologia for for birth of a nation, but many people. Uh, have tried to defend it by saying, or defend Griffith anyway, by saying it is an apology for for birth of nation, a, a kind of an expression of, oh no, you know, here, look, look how bad I can, you know, intolerance can be. Oh, and it's really more like, no, no, look at what your intolerance to my movie, you know, causes. The fall of Babylon is your fault, you know, essentially, <laughs> and all of these other things that are far less important. <laughs> uh, there's a lot. There's a lot in the movie. Uh, it's it's very famous for being a, a gigantic movie, biggest movie of the time, most expensive movie ever made, and not being able to really make enough money to recover because of that, because people weren't as interested, because it was less racist, so it it attracted less people at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> right. was smart. Yeah, Birth of a Nation, you know, most successful film ever made at that time. Tolerance, not as much, uh, and it's very long, and it's very all over the place it just it jumps back and forth between many different timelines and it's usually credited for being innovative because of that it's like oh look at all these interweaving narratives and it's really just like you you just you set up this uh 15th century france storyline and you haven't gone back to it in like 40 minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> why why are we back to babylon we were just there again what happened to the, the french stuff it's it's really all over the place. There's a there's a kind of like central narrative where where Lillian Gish is is symbolically rocking a cradle mm-hmm. that kind of keeps cutting in between sinners first. Uh, it's a, it's a it's a weak metaphor, and the film really wants to hammer the the theme of intolerance over and over very explicitly throughout the title cards. It's just it's screaming about the dangers of intolerance and how it can lead to societal collapses and. There's a there's a modern day narrative as well that you know is, is used to emphasize that that repetition of history the the echoes of intolerance and it it just feels very uh, overt but also very boring and <laughs> like the the only thing uh, I I think I could pin of merit and like it's like it's a big movie yep there's sure is a lot of production design and a whole lot of people in it that's super cool I guess. <laughs> Uh, but uh, fantastic, innovative, you know, uh, medium-defining filmmaking is not. <laughs> and and That's I appreciate very tolerant of you. <laughs> I, I appreciate that the narrative I, I see surrounding Griffith's status as the father of film, the inventor of the medium, and and gifter of its artistry, is largely turned against him in the, the 21st century. Very that, good. That, 
that mythos was built up for a long, long time that, you know, Griffith yeah. made, made movies uh, a thing. And uh, it's yeah. not really true. Uh, Birth of a Nation might have popularized or like solidified the, the medium as like a, a, a new potent art art form or mass in America, media, uh, yeah. of an entertainment. Uh, I, you know, I actually know. so it would have yeah. been better if it hadn't. Yeah, <laughs> because it, it kind of revitalized a like racist cult along uh, the way. Yeah, yeah, literally, uh, very... <laughs> literally. <laughs> not, not even, not even in like a general sense. It, it literally instigated the second rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a, a, a thing that absolutely happened. <laughs> yeah, we should point out that uh, intolerance, of course, it doesn't really like in the text. It doesn't like you know, it doesn't like mention or you know. No. Uh, no reference uh, uh birth of a nation in a way or the reception to birth of a nation um that's more like a anecdote on it but even by itself it's um it I, I, the film which we watched together uh, with david yes. i i, I roped you I into this uh somehow Spo i yeah spontaneously yeah. i said hey do you want to watch this like three and a half hour epic <laughs> movie with me yeah and i'm very tolerant so i uh, am <laughs> yeah i joined i joined that uh endeavor and uh yeah i mean the the main problem is that it's extremely unspecific um the intoler intolerance doesn't even apply to all the four narratives like that's yeah. a very arbitrary well it's um, also just a very vague nebulous idea to begin with yeah like, intolerance right. like you could you can apply that so liberally that it it just has no meaning mm -hmm. right um and uh I mean, it really uh, sort of, you know, it's really sort of based on a very um, uh, sort of white sort of 20th century, I mean, not 20th century, like all, it's actually older, much older than I think, yeah, 19th century, like uh, sort of uh, uh, his sort of philosophy of history. Um, it would and, be very interesting uh, if this film from 1916 had a 20th century sensibility to it that would be very yeah impressive. well no, no it could it could have that in the sense that that's then that sort of then persisted and dominated the 20th century but yeah, it's really yeah. more victorian sort of values eight. definitely held over for a good while yeah yeah um but it really stems from uh, before that and it's very you know very uh sort of the the, the mother with the cradle like sort of um is is an em is an emblem of that um sort of uh understanding of history and uh, yeah it's it's a very uh um of course sort of very uh, hegemonial and male dominated white sort of uh, universal also the mere thesis in the film which is that these four sort of uh, stories can be parallelized as one of historical relativism and sort of universalism uh, of of the an 18th 19th century um which um glosses over uh of course the <laughs> entire like historical and cultural contexts for yeah. these four different events and um sort of poses an equivalence that isn't there an equivalence that is yeah. extremely constructive it doesn't give them equal weight either. Like I said, the French storyline yeah. is is barely given much attention. It's very heavy on the modern and the, the Babylonian stories. 
very clear that the the interest of Babylon, I think, was Griffith's more, more prominent one. And he really wanted to just highlight the scope of that. Uh, I what even the hell? Oh yeah, and then, and then there's the Christ one. There's the crucifixion story, which is also in there. Uh, the they are all of those those bad Romans who who were intolerant to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, I think i called the film after we watched it i think I called it an outright stupid film like yeah. really sort of lacking in intelligence and uh, I, i'm st- i would stand by that i think that's I'm again not, i think I'm that's fair retracting this, that, this i'm happy thing. with the idea of getting it out of the canonization of like these movies in american film especially well i, I decided to to go with this one as kind of like the first script because i'm like it's got the same like level of, of cultural prominence or discussion as birth of a nation without yeah. me having to watch that grotesque <laughs> piece of shit nightmare uh but this is just even it, it discourages me more because i'm like oh there's oh, also no. not really a whole lot of merit here either like even like yeah. even if i tried right. to pick it apart on a technical craft i would be hard pressed to find something very complimentary about it like uh you know for for someone who's heralded as this great pioneer of, of cinema i'm i'm looking for anything that stands out to me and it was just it was so utterly dull just throughout I, I, even without know. birth of a nation really yeah you don't need yeah. that. you don't need to sort of any political um mm-hmm. side like a side vendetta raging just, against yeah, just, 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 from a, just from a technical standpoint it was it was hard to find anything that I would uh, could even acknowledge as being interesting or, or revolutionary or even competent. I might go yeah. as far as to say it's like. So what's uh, the other American classic you watched? Uh, the the other one <laughs> that I'm going to uh, totally destroy here right now is uh, Ben Hur from 1959, the William Wyler film. Uh-huh another story that uh incorporates uh the crucifixion of jesus as a sticking point for its uh, thematic commentary <laughs> and uh yeah this one i think leans even more into that obviously as as a proponent of its of its subject and it, and i think it uses that to rewrite hit, rewrite history in in a way that's uh complementary to a uh Anglo uh, supremacist uh, narrative of, um, uh, of of religion and Christianity specifically. Which you had is it right the first time. Rewrite sounds pretty good. <laughs> Rewrite, <laughs> yep. That's Rewrite history. Right. I like it. Rewrite history. Yeah. Yep. Uh, which is happened. obviously you can use that. It uh, you know it applies to a lot of films, but Ben Hur, I think it made it stood out to me like even more so for lots of reasons. Like I fixated on the idea because it's a story about a made-up Jewish man who, who is persecuted and thrown into slavery by the Romans, uh, but is, is designated as, as special by, by God and Jesus, who kind of comes along in his path, you know, at some points and, and helps him out in a very vague uh, way. And that kind of inspires him to become this singular figure of, uh, you know, resistance to persecution and, and, and triumph. But again, in a way that mirrors his story and sacrifices with that of mm-hmm. uh, Jesus, and I and I think that's very uh, manipulative and malicious because it again it essentially it co-ops Jewish persecution, very real Jewish persecution at the the hands of uh, the Romans at this time, this specific time in history, 
uh, and and conflates it with a a, a Christ narrative um, to say again that you know the and really it's about how the the perseverance and supremacy of Christians, but you're using a Jewish character to to kind of veil that in, in guise that way. And uh, I, I think that's really messed up for one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also the movie is just, I think, very bloated and interesting. It's a very simplistic, like, vendetta narrative. Like, it's like Charlton Heston just says this, like, he's got to get his, this revenge on his Roman buddy who turned him in. It takes a long, long ass time to get there, to get to the big chariot race, which is the famous thing of the film where he. Which is he, fantastic. It is. One of the and greatest is, action sequences ever. But uh-huh. but I have to issue an apologia because I, <laughs> uh, because I feel that I haven't seen it in forever. Firstly, but I like the very homosexual subtext of everything. Uh, but I doubt it's really that great of a movie. So it's one that I need to reconsider now that I'm not just looking for like oh I'm gonna watch it because it's in a canon. Try to appreciate what people already like about it. You know, it's, now I'm it's... older and could criticize. Mm-hmm. It's it's one in a wave of these big Roman epic films that were made around this which time, which I like. And, which I like. I like and, that kind of thing. And I think if you want that, down to the the obvious but not at all nuanced homosexual subtext, uh, I think Spartacus is much better at that. And I think Spartacus mm-hmm. has more more bang for your buck in just about every department. And it's not <laughs> it's not preachy. That wasn't a pun, but uh, I'm gonna roll with it. Um, uh, I think it's got better acting all around for sure. Um, and again, like the, the, the singular moment of, of Ben-Hur, you also have like a, a boat sequence, like a, this big of uh, ship yeah. battle and it's okay. Uh, I, it's, I can see why fine. people might it's think good. it's pretty great, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's that great. Um, the, one of the reasons that the, the chariot race sequence is so great is because the second unit director there who basically coordinated all the action was the famous stuntman Yakima Kanut. Who, you know, even more famously, you know, is known for doing the stunt work on Stagecoach. And there's even a bit, the same bit, where he goes under a carriage uh, that you see in Ben Hur as well. Although uh, they cut to a dummy getting absolutely trampled by a horse, you know, afterwards. And it's yeah. it's pretty messy. It's pretty great. Uh, but you can just go look up that chase sequence on the the the, the race on YouTube. And you'll get all the value out of the film uh, out of nine minutes instead of watching three and a half hours. <laughs> it's another thing to reconsider, I feel like, is that I, oh, I've read that a bunch of horses died in the production and all that. And maybe it's not that great of a thing to celebrate anyway. So uh, well, yeah, I have a lot of critical things to reassess here. That's that's the catch yeah, with all correct. these uh, big horse mm-hmm. stunt movies and everything. Is that yeah. I heard a hundred died. Lot, a lot of horses get, and also up. makes the case <laughs> makes the case for uh, another film, which you know you should watch the same way, which is go on YouTube and watch the one scene, and making a case for Cruella, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> avoiding yeah. animal cruelty. Uh, <laughs> at least it did that. Uh, that's the only thing it avoided. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what about that's, a what about a hot old film that uh, that you've watched, Pablo? So. I, I love this yes. movie. Right. I mean, I watched it uh, because of you. Uh, I mean, uh, I would have watched it eventually down the line, but you know, you never know when that would have been. But uh, because of our internal uh, roulette um, event uh, where mm-hmm. we exchange uh, recommendations, uh, which are, you know, I like that, that we've established the term recommendations or recs for it when it's really just assignments. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> but. Um, 
Yeah. Let's uh, go. No. Do you want to say something, David? Uh, it's it's like a a, a more stern recommendation. <laughs> yeah. I guess is I guess yeah. is the way we kind of look at it. You yeah. know, it's I'm, a, it's a I'm recommending this to you, and you have to watch better it. Better watch it. Right. <laughs> I recommend you better watch this. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the film is Go Go Second Time Virgin. Uh, that's the English. It's a great title, name. Anyway. Great name, by the way. For, it's for fantastic. Yeah. Right. Let's see. Uh, the um, right. That's the English title. Uh, the uh, original title is Yuke Yuke Nidome no Shojo. Um, also, also and, a great title. <laughs> yeah, and it's about um, it's about two uh, young. Uh, people on a roof of a of a building, and the film kind of only takes place uh, mostly on that roof, also in some other parts of that building, but it, it is confined to that building. And um, they sort of uh, it's a it's a film from '69, and it's very much in that sort of countercultural, uh, you know, '68 six, student uh, protest movement, which obviously mm -hmm. was going on globally, uh, very much in the yeah. vein of that, both. Thematically, uh, sort of um, the generational divide um, plays a big uh, role, but also uh, specific issues of particularly the girl's, uh, you know, body being violated by um, by men on the on the on the roof, and uh, her sort of uh, resigning herself to that, but also. Um, so still crying out, trying to like find forms of expression for it. Yeah. And um, and the the boy, interestingly enough, having a a a uh, like sort of it's his own history with rape. Uh, um, and yeah, they and, and sort of coping with that very differently by sort of taking taking action or taking things into his own hands. And um, the film really. Um, Sort of uh, for the film, uh, music uh, plays a central role, um, and um, certainly the ca the camera work. Uh, and for me, it became this sort of uh, this sort of uh, ballet uh, uh, about you know sort of uh, uh, love and, and death and the sort of the big questions, but obviously. Uh, um, treated in a way treated like from very deliberately from this youth youth perspective yeah. of course you know at an age where you we do that where you sort of uh, do it with a lot of pathos as well um and a highly staged a highly theatrical um film um that also a also a, a, a like like uh, which was like detour we've talked about it before that nice um mid-length uh, feature uh at 66 minutes which is yeah it's like mm -hmm. it's an underrated underrated runtime the hour film the one hour film um really uh yeah uh, really underused at, at least today um uh yeah so uh it and it's it's uh, often classified this is the last thing i'll say for now it's often classified as a pinku film which uh is it is only in the sense that it's sort of a, an an explicit, you know, avant-garde film, which, you know, a lot of Pinku uh, sort of implies the avant-garde aspect of it. But let's say that mo a lot of Pinku is also sort of <laughs> um, well, like, like, like the, like, it's, it's kind of similar, like, to, um, you can kind of liken it to the giallo uh, in Italian cinema, 
uh, where um, you know you have films that sort of um, you can you can sort of classify under that, but they sort of also transcend it. Um, oh, I don't think it like has to transcend it or anything. I mean, I think Pinku is a great form for like to, experimentation, but... where like these, yeah, where like this guy is like a Japanese new wave filmmaker, and he brings like those aspects into like all of his jazz yeah. and his stylistic tendencies are very Japanese new wave. But then they bring those into like these low budget films without like strict limitations on them, and they could kind of do whatever the fuck they want because it's just a Pinku, so they could experiment with something like this, is which is like systemic pressures on young people and how they respond to violence in society and it's like that adolescent mind frame of like how do we handle rape and murder and all on like a rooftop doing like jazz ballet it's fucking cool so so for those who might not know exactly what a pinku is and the yeah. comparison to giallo here uh, basically is the sense that it has like elements of more exploitative cinema but uh while well, while well not quite being just explicitly appealing because of that like there's an right. there's an artistry behind those aspects of it uh yeah. that's again in incorporated but uh again uh, like you said maybe transcend is is the word transcend that those those trappings that's the word i used and yeah. cal said i mean that's I the word i used have to is one thing i didn't say it has to transcend it but we can i think we can yeah. agree it's just it's one point of a spectrum it's like yeah. one on one side of a spectrum and the other side is uh the other um polar end of it is um pinkus that are just actually yeah. um yeah exploitation kidding themselves the, the, the giallo is a good uh you know parallel to that then because obviously you can have your more transcendent giallos the ones that do kind of display a greater artistry but you also just have the flat out exploitative overtly violent you know uh you know gory kind of things that people also want yeah. from from the genre there and they can mm -hmm. have both yeah 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 it, it, right i didn't mean to like yeah. i think um for example one of my also another favorite of mine from the time um um which will come to me in a second uh well anyway japanese film, uh, cinema pinku is sort of a reference point for a lot of uh um japanese cinema and uh um even today like uh, someone like shion sono um works heavily with pinku now you get that European siren. Yeah. Uh, it sounds we, like we a did, giallo is happening in there. We, we can compare <laughs> later. We... Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, the yeah, someone like Sono, uh, like so, very um, you know, references Pinku heavily as one of the elements uh, that he sort of throws in, into his films and stuff. So yeah. It's not something that is, you know, it's not a, it's it's a respect, yeah. it's a, it's important, uh, important yeah. part of Japanese cinema. Yes, it's very important. It's not a, it's not a derogatory label or anything like that. It's, yeah. you know, it's a. In fact, right. In fact, um, many directors that um, that aren't aren't known at all for any pinkus um, um, started out in pinku. Uh, mm -hmm. So you have to, you see, there's a lot of. Um, is it? Isn't there an example of like an, an Ozu Pinku film? I, th I think we've heard about. My thought I know. Oh, I, oh I, you're thinking, you're thinking, oh, I think you're thinking of the parody. Oh, not the parody, but the, like the Ozu homage. Oh, um, okay. okay. Film. That was very, yeah, 
Yeah, that a friend Ollie watched recently. Yeah, well, it was it was yeah. like a little while ago, but I just I remember those two words together, like like the it, it was a, a kind of anathema, you know, description. So yeah, yeah, that's that's a that was a was a parody, <laughs> which also uh, and 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 yeah, and that was a case of like there's sort of the serious sort of also amateur, and then the pinku stuff is kind of <laughs> just very. <laughs> It's just very flat, sort of exploitative pinku. So there's very, very many permutations, um, sort of of it, and uh, can, it can come come in many forms. Funeral uh, Parade of Roses is the film that I was thinking of. Was kind of mm -hmm. Gotcha, earlier. gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So go, watch um, Go Go uh, Second Time Version. So right glad now. you loved it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and thank you again for the yeah. Absolutely, buddy. I'm very happy today also that we're we're covering a director who I've really taken to in a short amount of time. Um, and I, I went and saw um, his new film first. I got it from IFC there. I don't know if it's released here yet, but Undine. I know it's been out probably in Germany for a lot longer. Um, yeah. It has it been released. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. It premiered um, last last year at Bellinale, So mm -hmm. It's about... Uh, a European tradition of a water spirit and uh, a tour guide for, uh, I wouldn't say a tour guide, but like a historian who's uh, telling everyone about like the history of Berlin and its buildings and um, kind of like socioeconomics, like architecture and how that deals with people. But um, it like deals with history and like what's underwater and uh, in, a, in a way that's completely different from <laughs> the, the films that I've seen of his so far. So um a lot lighter and looser touch on this than I'd say a uh, uh, Phoenix and uh, Barbara and uh, what's it called a uh, transit um, uh, mm -hmm. outside that trilogy that he has uh, his love and mythology movies a little bit different, um, but it deals with Berlin in a certain way that he has dealt with the history of Germany and how it's uh, constructed. I know you'd have a lot sharper take on all that part, but uh for me, a uh, very charming romance anyway, because he has such a deft touch. And I think he's one of the few classicists left who like frames his images in a way that go back through the history of like Hollywood and uh, older German cinema. And he's like constantly referencing like Fritz Lang and uh, like this whole history of cinema behind him. So I think he is a classicist ultimately in the way that he frames his shots and how he deals with constructions of characters. Cause it feels like it could be out of noir. Yeah. Yeah, you could say. <laughs> yeah. I like that label for him a lot. Um, I, I'm really endeared to his movies, but uh, this one, not not a huge hit for me. Um, I mm. I liked it still all the same, but I don't think there's the same kind of depth there, ironically, for a movie about going underwater and uh, finding this mm. uh, woman. Uh, of course, uh, the story of Undine is she, you probably know it better than me, but she, what would you say? She falls in love with the guy, and then if he cheats on her, she dies. Uh, Mm -hmm. And she has to leave him and go back underwater. But in the meantime, she falls in love with another guy. Um, and for her, there's like that complication of like found romance and when you can't really have something, but it feels like the right thing. Uh, Franz Rogowski plays the, the new guy who's just a diver and uh, she finds him while going back underwater and uh, kind of reattaches um, to something and wants to stay on land, but she's fated to die. So it's a really beautiful thing. Uh, Paula Beer, really great actress anyway, and they play off each other so well. Um, I think you'll know Rogowski from uh, Transit, and uh, he has like his own stable of actors that he's really committed to, and I think he just works 
so well off them, which we'll get to a lot in uh, Phoenix, I believe. Uh, I, I really like it. Ultimately, I, I just don't think it's a uh, that that deep, as I said. Are you uh, are you sure? Like, is that because I haven't seen Undina? Of, mm. uh, I haven't seen Petzold's Undina, but um, uh, is the the original myth is that the um, um, the Undina has to marry um, the the person to get to get like a soul to sort of okay. And uh, if that person is um, unfaithful, then she kills him. Like she, he, he, you said, I oh, think yeah. you said she has to die, but um, either she kills him or has to die mythos, or something, I think. In the mythos, like the, she kills the, kills the, the guy who, che who, cheats, who cheats on her. Do I want to spoil just... the whole movie? <laughs> no, no, I'm not okay. saying, okay, no, okay. okay, no, I'm just saying that's sort of the, the, uh, the, the mythos anyway. yeah uh, so the opening scene well i guess it's not spoilers so much opening scene is she says i'm going to kill you um so you know i i guess yeah. she follows through with that in a way uh late in the you, movie. You, i guess you should mention that it's also a well or how to say it. i mean it is a transposition of the mythos right to like of a course. modern day really. uh yeah right it's not a it's not a fantastical film it's really beautiful too. Like the love scene in the movie is just Paula Beer going through her uh, construction on on like old Berlin and talking about Germany and its history of buildings. Like that's like his romantic touch for uh, Petzold on this is that he's like, I, I just want to hear her give a lecture, and that's a really beautiful choice. I think uh, I I wasn't always mm -hmm. attached to it though. I I have some misgivings with it that I'll detail in her review. I, I just think it's flat a lot of the time, and I don't think uh, it lives okay. up to that trilogy of movies that that I've really fallen for. So. Mm -hmm. The yeah, it seems like uh, Rogowski and uh, Bea are like his new duo like because muses, he's yeah. a yeah because because we're gonna talk about it also later. But he's one who works with a very um, constant, very consistent uh, set of uh, people. Not only in the um, in the with the actors, which for example, in a lot of films he worked with Nina Haas, for example. Uh, like he did a lot, an entire series of film with Phoenix being the the last one. Uh, he was working with Nina Haas uh, a lot, but also, um, for example, uh, on the camera, Hans Fromm has done every single one of his films. <laughs> oh, on the everyone! Camera. Like, uh, yeah, I think it's everyone. Um, okay. Yeah. Every every film. And um, Stefan Will on the music, I think, um, if not every film, then close to every film, but like many films of his. Uh, Bettina Burla is, is cutter. Mm. She has, she cuts all of them. So he likes to work with a very, um, very sort of, yeah. Like Dedicated a, group. Set, is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, crew. Um, Sure. I feel like it's very charming because all his films do have that distinct feeling. And I think Undine definitely has that that feel that I got from all his other films. So it's just not as in-depth about the history. And, you know, it, it has that slice, but it's that's in the background. So. Um, I wonder if... Um, Maybe you'll so find so Undine, much more. There's, in one big, there's one big change for Undine, which, um, okay. which has to do with uh, Harun Farroki, you know, fa famous... Um, Famous uh, essays filmmaker, film theoretician, political film filmmaker Harun Farroki, who was like extremely influential. Uh, not watched in a popular sense much, but uh, did he pass away? Uh, sort of among film scholars. Yeah, he passed away yeah, uh, right. uh, before Bondina, um, and and he uh, so Petzl studied under him, and um, they used to like he used to um, go through every of his one of his scripts often like. 
doing like re dramatic readings with him and like mm. really go working through the scripts, uh, all of the scripts with him. And so one of the things that's new uh, for the um, for this film, which is supposed to be another, he likes to do trilogies, like obviously loose trilogies, not yeah, yeah. <laughs> connected, but like thematic trilogies. This this is sort of the um, start of a new one um, based on the on uh, German uh, romanticism because Undine was also sort of as an antique mythos uh, heavily adapted in German romanticism. Um, and um, this is going to be the start of this trilogy, but he has done, before that, you had the three like sort of historical films, right? And uh, and then before that, you had the, the Gespenster trilogy, the ghost trilogy. Yeah, um, absolutely. So very interesting. Uh, I, I, I like the way of working, like sort of doing these thematic yeah, units. Too. And uh, um, yeah, very curious uh, to see this one as well. For like, I'll, I'll get to this one probably very soon since I'm, um watching his films now i didn't get to all the ones that i did want to get to but i, I did get in a couple so absolutely well I'm, I'm most grateful that you're here for this because i wanted your take especially so i'm glad you're on this show yeah we'll get right into it now i guess um, well let's, yeah, uh, are we going to do another break one more break uh, then we'll come back and finish it up with the uh, phoenix our moment is swift like ships adrift we're swept apart So, uh, Phoenix, we're, we're back on talking about Petzold again. Um, this this is my first Petzold film, though. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't watch any prior to this because obviously uh, I'm completely ignorant to any film made before 1967. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, but this was this was a real treasure to watch. I was very um, happy with it. Very very taken uh, with the film. Uh, from from beginning to end, I, I should say, and, and I'd seen plenty of praise building up to it. Like I know this has been something of a, a favorite amongst people on on the site and our our close inner circle here. So there was there was some lofty expectations going in, you know, uh, and because I'm always I'm always prepared for disappointment. <laughs> um, whenever right. I I just I, I feel like I always have to like. Um. A healthy well, stance yeah when, when, when something has a that. reputation like like and 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 it's the inverse as well when like because you know the other thing is that i've been watching a streak of shitty films but some yeah. of them i'm going in knowing this is like a barely known film it's like a fifth string musical or some shit i'm going uh -huh. in knowing that maybe there's like two things that might be appealing or of interest and so i go in and i'm like yep that's that's what it was you know and and so i still get some positive experience but Again, on the opposite end here, if it's got a, like a really big, lofty reputation, lots of praise, uh, I kind of steal myself in case I don't click or whatever. Sure. But this, that, that, there definitely was not that problem here. 
Uh, particularly, I found the the, the story very uh, engaging, very swift too. You know, it, it had a great intrigue uh, in, in its premise, but uh, a heavy um, feeling to, to to the the emotional weight and thematic content of it behind uh, throughout, and to balance all that with this this uh, immense you know um, background uh, of uh, the the post Holocaust situation. Uh, it was, it's all these like kind of careful ingredients that need to be held together. And I think, you know, if one thing could be off one another, it could tip into, you know, uh, kind of an unsavory territory potentially because, because the plot, uh, you know, just on a basic level, if you look at it on, on a premise, it's, it's a little absurd. It's like, it's, it's like a little unbelievable that this, uh, husband is, is, uh, you know, trying to, get his his uh wife's money uh you know who who apparently died by you know dressing up an, another woman to look like her uh i saw in in, in the letterbox review you wrote calvin that, that you mentioned it has shades of vertigo uh and i think that's very true very uh, very that... on my second watch very very clearly uh i don't even think it's you know I don't even think it's outside the box. Yeah. Uh, it's where, like inverted where, where is... vertigo, though. I mean, there's like a inverted oh, yeah. between the male woman dynamic of vertigo. Yeah, yeah, and and it's interesting, but but where vertigo has like this inherently kind of like you know it really leans into the the kind of thriller aspects of it, and it plays it up, you know, the theatricality in a very you know Hitchcockian way. This uh, the you know Petzold's film here is very straight. It, it's it's entirely sincere in its delivery. And, uh, you know, I, I think to, to pull off that tonal balance is pretty miraculous. And uh, the, the fact that it keeps it going throughout the entire time there, uh, it, it, it really uh, took me by that. The identity drama of it all, very Hitchcockian. Um, I, I've been doing even more background reading. Of course, uh, Vertigo ended up being like a big reference point there. Um, David, you'll be happy that uh, he sat his actors down and watched Out of the Past to uh, figure mm -hmm. out how to connect to historical landmarks and uh in a way the the male performance here is very much like a robert mitchum type and i guess that's kind of what the direction was going for um uh, but like hostin just her performance is so big in it uh, petzl said that uh, eventually she became the director of the film because her performance kind of overwhelmed the direction to the point that she became the director just through her acting i think that like all that strong stuff from those movies but uh another one they looked at was uh, umbrellas of Cherbourg. so uh, you could see like how they grab from history and obviously these aren't relevant in the story, but uh, these are like the movies they watch to prepare to do this kind of historical fiction. Uh, yeah. And it's actually, it's actually more relevant to stuff like eyes without a face, for example. Oh yeah. yeah. Literally yeah. it's very much a, yeah, that would be the title yeah. of the movie. I mean, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so it definitely, uh, it's an interesting first Petzl to watch because it's like I said it's like this it's part of like his sort of three uh the historic three like sort of historical films he made but what do you call you it know, the love in very... times of oppression or something it's something love in like times that. of oppressive systems yeah yeah that's it yeah 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 um and um so, so I mean I guess we should say films from 2014 and it's just the story uh real quick is like a, survive, a, a Holocaust survivor, uh, a woman who survived the concentration camps, but had a face disfigured um, um, 
during it or as a result of that returns um, accompanied by a friend of hers who works for the um, Jewish agency um, to Berlin to find her husband. But well, she, actually, no, she returns to sort of sort out her inheritance, you know, mm -hmm. because obviously um, her entire family died um, in, in the Holocaust. This is taking place like right, like, you know, right after the war, basically Berlin is separated and they return to the American sector. Uh, the, uh, this mostly takes place and uh, and um, sort of she has this second plan in her mind of finding her husband, which the, her friend uh, is very much uh, opposed to and wants she, like a friend, uh, proposes like, you know, picking up the um, inheritance and going to Palestine. Um, um, and uh, the woman is sort of, you know, on this quest to find, find her husband and then... Um, the uh, her friend suspects and then also confirms that uh, he sort of uh, you know abandoned her like denunciated her and um, yeah, in this there, case he actually divorced her um, th there's a strong um, implication that he he may have turned her over to the nazis or you know like kind of did something yes. to separate himself um and you know yeah. get away from the situation that again it, it seems pretty explicitly the case but there's enough sense of denial there to to identify with exactly with the, nelly and, does the character doesn't believe it yeah yeah and and there's enough you know not confirmed for us to say maybe yeah maybe <laughs> yeah we don't know and so she gets a restored rate of uh surgery um and it's also there's already this films like has so many great details um for example uh when she gets the surgery, the doctor asks her if she like she, you know, wants to be more like this type or this type, like two films like stars of the time. They, um, they, they reference a, a first long film as well. Uh, I caught that. Uh, he mentioned yeah, the, and, the countdown and they, from uh right. from Iman. Yeah, they're saying um, do you know the word countdown? It's an American it's a it's a, yeah, they, this is what the Americans movie. call it, but it's actually from a from a Fritz Lang film. Um but but yeah, no, he like um, he says, like, do you want to get modeled after this uh, actress or this actress? And she says, she wants, you know, wants to be as close as possible to her, her old self. Um, but, you know, this practice of these uh, surgeries and stuff, we seen like as a fresh start, you know, for, um, for, for many. Um, and uh, then uh, her husband sort of recognizes that she looks similar to his old wife, but obviously um, believes that she's, dead that she died in yeah. the concentration camp and that's how he uh wants to get um you know he, he sort of train he keeps her in his home and sort of wants to train her to behave and move and write and sort of speak and stuff like her uh like his is <laughs> the wife that he believes is deceased um and it is obviously i mean it's very clearly it's not a sort of it's not supposed to be in like a, a naturalist realist premise by any means it's a yeah. very deliberately sort of contrived and condensed um uh, uh, premise uh, for yeah. this mm -hmm. for the film um and uh it goes along with a something that is very um interesting for pets also um to get to talk about one aspect like his topology his uh, way of dealing with spaces um, is very uh, very famous for his style. Also famous for the uh, style of the uh, Berliner Schule, which he's one of the which which um, he's one of the main directors of, which is uh, people who graduated from 
um, this uh, film school at the FBB uh, in Berlin. Um, and it's uh, sort of very, uh, for most of his films, he didn't do historical settings, he did contemporary settings. And they're taking place like in post, a post-unification uh, Germany where um, sort of economical uh, interests uh, sort of govern social uh, relations. And there's that sort of this country sort of forming a new uh, under this sort of neo new neoliberal um, paradigm. And so uh, his films are often read as a critique of, of that and sort of depicting that sort of economization or economical logic seeping into these um, relation, relations. And with that comes um, a treatment on places. Um, and there's also very famous um, for sort of Petzold uh, uh, studies, so to speak, a famous essay by uh, Marco Abel on, on his films where um, he connected with the uh, concept by Marc Auger, which is the non-places, non uh, which are these anonymous places often connecting, like in the landscape, often connecting certain things, but like sort of have this anonymous, uh, um, uh, very, very anonymous, very like cold um, uh, sort of characteristics to them, which is, for example, ho so certain hotels or like um, out at the Autobahn, you know, the high German highway, places at the fringe of that of, of like or near airports and stuff i mean i'm sure you can you know there's there's not a german phenomenon these non-places like you can think of these places which were like which are like very non-specific and have like this very uh, are often connected with tra transit are often like transitionary spaces you know where you're not there for a long time where it's not a lot of where you can't set up a, anything that you can sort of recognize as personal or um um yeah or connected to a certain identity and why, why I say all this is because I feel like these, um, for example, something like Phoenix uh, or Phoenix rather, uh, um, to to pronounce it in uh, German, um, has been sort of read as like you know sort of a departure from that. But um, I think a lot of his um, uh, the stuff that interests him, obviously stuff like screens, which in a lot of films like streams and surveillance and stuff plays a big role. Obviously, not so much in <laughs> Phoenix for <laughs> obvious reasons, for uh, period-related reasons. But um, which uh, is, for example, the mm -hmm. which is a weird thing, like with transit, because as you're watching it, you're thinking about fascism and like this history, and then then suddenly there are phones and modern automobiles. So. I mean, he does Hans eventually. Works very differently, yeah. yeah. Afterwards, mm. he is able to turn that script and and bring surveillance and like a means of identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tanzit does sort of a a sort of melange of of historical times, where it does like mm. where it's technically set in the modern times, but then there's a lot of very um, sort of period aspects about it, and it's a very. I mean, I thought that well, that was uh, one of the best things about Tanzit was this very interesting sort of uh, confluence of, or this sort of new, almost like new time that he creates sort of by um, having these things sort of flow together. But um, for, for Phoenix, for example, think about the relation between um, Nelly and he, her husband. He, like, it's, it's one of pure economic uh, uh, um, reasoning or like pure like economic speculation. He wants to use her to get the, the money from the um, uh, from the inheritance. That is something that uh, I thought on this rewatch, I thought much more about than, than last time, that um, 
the, even there you still have this uh, you still have this aspect, for example, which is definitely much stronger, much more pervading in in uh, previous of his films, like as you also saw Yella, for example, which is you get uh, to uh, Barbara, uh, by the way. I didn't get to that one. Okay. I watched. Um, oh, I've seen Transit. I've, she, I've seen uh, Yella, which is a very uh, like sort of very uh, characteristic film for 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 a lot of the Petzold uh, themes. I, and I, I saw actually his first two um, TV features, oh, which cool. are also especially the first one, which is called Pilotinen, um Pilot. Uh, is uh, is very much worth watching and it's amazing it's like it was like his graduation film and it already contains so many of his uh sort of the the, the themes and uh stylistic uh aspects that would define him later already and it's like it must be one of the best graduation like <laughs> graduation <was> films <laughs> ever because it's really very accomplished very i good. feel like barbara probably doesn't get seen the most out of this trilogy and i feel like barbara mm -hmm. is an important piece for it because it's about like immigration east germany and it, it has all these themes too but i, I think phoenix yeah. is definitely the most profound and i think fully formed of, of this series um one aspect I wondered about if that came through at all is um, since obviously there's always this um, uncertainty whether, you know, he recognizes her or it doesn't, or like he doesn't want to yeah. believe it and stuff. And um, obviously there's also like a progression to the relationship. And um, um, did you, uh, in, in German, there's obviously the, for, there's the formal, um, pronoun and the informal like i can say in, in english it's just you but in 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 german and many other many many other languages yeah. <laughs> english is, is the outlier there there's a d distinction you make a distinction between the a formal pronoun that you say to someone that you don't know yet or you know just like a professional relationship or whatever and to like a friend um or family or whatever and that uh they she calls him johnny and like uses the informal you and he insists on the formal yeah yeah uh, pronoun pron only pron his friends time. call him johnny and she's not his friend so. i mean johnny's also like his old name so his old name yeah he's yeah. he's obviously yeah. like he's discarded that because the new one is is more of a variation it's like a johannes i think right yeah yeah uh so and and then but at like toward the end of the film he starts slipping up more and more in, in certain he spots calls calls her nelly her. at one point and, and they, they yeah, culture, culture, Nelly, or the yeah, or the form, also the formal pronoun, uh, the informal pronoun. Yeah, it's um, but... it's it's funny that despite the fact that I was I was very aware when I watched the film and, and other German films that I've watched recently since I've begun learning the the language and you know occasionally that uh, it could, it could be kind of like a more bizarre viewing experience. One of the reasons I undertook learning it was because I was you know I'm like I, I like German films a lot you know particularly a lot of. <laughs> older ones this seems like a, a great language learning a great way to view these films more so but it's, mm -hmm. it's been kind of derailing during the learning process because I, I, just, I just get kind of thrown off because now the language i'm listening to is no longer nebulous and thus i can block it out like i hear words but not like yeah. thoughts and so uh, that mm -hmm. was something that i was definitely aware of here but i didn't catch that i didn't catch the formal and informal pronoun thing yeah. which yeah. which you would think i i would because that's an an obvious and early thing to learn mm -hmm. with the language mm -hmm. yeah i only got it that one time when when he calls it when she calls her yeah, johnny yeah. right away but that's that's very established in the text though so. yeah 
very easy to get yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, what he also, I mean, another parallel to also like his older films that I think he really just um, works the same way here, even though you do, maybe you don't think about it too much because you don't see these modern non-places like, uh, you know, in the car, cars and, and autobahns and stuff uh, is the space is extremely reduced. Like um, he, uh, he uh, uh, really um, refuses to give a lot of like establishing shots or like big, like, you know, setting the senior setting a locale or whatever. It's very um, um, compressed the space. You have this, you have this apartment and then you have certain apartments, you have certain institutions. And then you have like the streets around this Phoenix um nightclub Club. where also you get this uh, get some nice sort of you know get, get this like old cabaret uh, the musical numbers um yeah um the uh, song yeah also when they're in the changing room they start mm -hmm. when she asks about them about johnny they start they start singing um uh, a song and um it's a very and that goes hand in hand there with uh, his one of the like main major defining characteristics of um a lot of directors from the Berliner Schule and especially Petzold is his like very reflected use and like very innovative and reflected like rejuvenation um, of genre of genre film um, mm -hmm. plays a big role for his films, especially sort of noir or like crime narratives um, play a big role, but not in the sense that he makes a genre film but in the sense that he thinks about like, where do these, like how and in what way, like do these fit in and like um, sort of he weaves them in very naturally uh, in story in films that aren't genre films by themselves, but he finds like very creative appliances for uh, like application cases for these um, established uh, uh, for, for this established for this established narrative genre uh, language and the genre codes that was um, that, that was definitely the the kind of thing i was i was touching on when i was for, first talking about the film here and that i find that, that it's it's got that that very like kind of like like uh, almost pulpy kind of premise that you that you might say mm -hmm. uh that kind of pull yeah. you in and it's it's kind of uh it becomes very accessible because of that on, on a narrative level but like you said it, it never feels like a genre film despite right. that very kind of genre-like premise that you'd have there. Because you could easily see this going in a completely different direction if you chose to, just based on the, the concept here. Um, but again, to, to balance that tonally and and to make that work throughout is is, is very well done, is very well uh, directed at, at all times, so that you, you maintain the broader appeal and intrigue of a kind of traditional thriller um, premise like this but mm -hmm. with all of the emotional weight and thematic complexities particularly concerning around uh identity um you know and and uh perspective of of personages and stuff you know what what the you know the, the battle of what she thinks you know like, like this coming to terms with who she is now remaking herself after this you know debilitating you know de destruction of herself but also you know learning and you know the under what her her husband wants her to be or wanted her to be or how he perceived her and this this kind of evolving sense of that and uh it growth and arc that she has over the course of the film to to become 
herself again and whether that's going to be the same self that she was she's trying to emulate or a new self you know born out of the ashes as the title you know kind of implies here mm -hmm. i just think and that society in denial as well a society yeah. in denial is very yeah that but, idea yeah. is so ingenious that we're just watching someone pretend to be themselves it's so involving and um there's there's so much more you have to do as a performer i think to, to really get that across to be a fake version of yourself and i think she really sells that um i believe her the whole way and it's such a tight really terse movie that really gets to the point and yeah. really drives it home at the home at the end it's like it's like a fucking knife through the back it, it I, feels good though i mean i you're like oh I mean, man this is great yeah. cinema yeah that'll be one of the most ahead. effective endings yeah the, the uh, ending is is just justly touted as being you know a very incredible kind of punch to the gut and it and it builds up in a kind of beautiful crescendo the the direction really like you know spurs to life in, in a very prominent way there is, is you're kind of building up to this reveal and and all of these uh you know things that have kind of been set up throughout uh even just mm -hmm. you know very recently in the context of the the story you know that kind of come to a head here the script is is very polished in that sense that there's not uh, anything that's particularly wasted, you know, you've got your, uh, your, your setups and payoffs, you know, and they come through and in a natural sense, never coming like it's contrived. Um, you know, th there are some elements of the film that I think narratively, you know, they're, they kind of have to be that kind of like glossed over or smooth to kind of keep the, the story tight and pacing or, or so you're not questioning the premise too much, you know, they kind of move past quickly but it's all mm. it all works i would i, I wouldn't oh, yeah. want it to dawdle and, and sit and try and like gaze or explain or, or try and make it feel more naturalistic like like you said earlier there pavlos it's it's kind of an inherently ab absurd or unbelievable premise um yeah for the ending as well it's so notable i mean how it's not a, anything special for the ending or anything because that's a style it's a very reduced and like sort of um the mise-en-scene is like highly uh so highly significant but reduced and, and thus every element becomes highly significant so it's not there's not like there's always just as much on screen as uh, you really need and mm -hmm. also and sometimes even less so but then it's supplemented through the uh, audio through the oral um uh, layer which when they're in the um when when she's in his um like uh place on, uh, in, his, in his apartment let's call it an apartment yeah <laughs> um, it's like a basement it's like a bunker yeah it's a basement yeah um i don't know how much you guys picked up because that stuff does get a lot of subtitles in the film but mm -hmm. like you constantly hear all the sounds from the street it's oh, extremely yeah. uh it's just extremely um sort of uh deliberate there and, and arranged like uh, the you hear everything like for everything that's passing by people talking um it's like uh and constantly you feel like almost every scene there's a little uh or every every shot there's like uh something interesting playing in the background so that there's a lot of information that's conveyed there and then the ending i mean it's can you get more reduced it's essentially a uh it's it's essentially a shot reverse shot um with one close up on the uh, on her oh, hand on her uh, wrist, yeah. yeah. There's, um, there, I think there's a cutaway to the the friends, but that's about it. Otherwise, that's that's a that's basically the, the after end. the punch has been yeah. delivered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's true. Where you get like all, which is like also very extremely smart. Like all of a sudden, you sort of this quick reminder that all, yeah, you almost an forget here. that they're there. 
because and the audience sort of mirrors the viewer in a way like, yeah yeah sort of um in that speechlessness and um yeah so it, i mean it's it's really amazing uh so sure. great that he's instructed her to tell them that that she's like torn it off her skin and and then there it is there's that huge image and just like that like you say it's it's a gut punch it, it feels big um it's also kind of uh, uh, uncovered, like the, the superficiality of that's what I really read this time the film much more critically toward him because uh, sort of the entire time she's in front of him right like she behaves yeah. more, she's like and then he it really just needs the um, obviously her singing but also that number which is like you can't go get more like yeah. that's like the 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 sort of to, to identify someone you can't get more brutal and direct than that yeah and um that's sort of what he needs to finally realize that this the sort of this thing his wife no less is uh, sort of in front of him the whole time uh, and to, for it to be the registration number identification number of the concentration camp um is in words it sounds kind of um ham-fisted but yeah um it, it totally works because it doesn't linger on it at all it's like it's this quick glance on it and boom and you and you got it yeah one, one of the other things with the song in particular is that it also comes there at the at the at the end like the credits it literally replays the 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 theme again which then kind of like when you hear it in that composition you're made immediately aware that that's been the recurring theme that you've been hearing throughout the film at significant moments it's been that song that she mm -hmm. sings later so that's another yeah. really nice touch, like, yeah very very obvious like you know uh intent uh throughout the entire film that the you know Petzl Zavi had this moment in mind yeah. from the beginning also these songs play a lot of always play a role in this films and um here in this case it's about these american songs and for example the friend of of nelly says like she can't hear the german songs anymore yep. and you get uh german performers singing uh, the american songs which was a real thing like a lot of these both Very sing fun. the original lyrics and like german uh, translate like a tr translated german Oh, that's that's one of the the things I really enjoyed about more so it's in the first half of the film is that you get this real sense of of the historical setting, uh, you know it's very easy for for films or any films with kind of historical setting to just have a total dissonance with the the actual like style you know if it comes to makeup or or costuming or dress or whatever but the the setting here I think. Uh, Petzl really gets uh, terrifically, you know, particularly seeing all the all the rubble around, the desolation, uh, the nightclub scene, the uh, the the overwhelming presence of American influence uh, over this sector of of it, Berlin at the yeah. time. Yeah, it's a very constructed space. Just sorry, last thing I think we need to wrap up, but yeah, it's not a it's not a like naive like sort of. Uh, costume drama like sense of no. place where it's like oh here's something but it's like it's very highly constructed highly reflected like these are these are these things need to be there these are the, the important things and um and then you get obviously with the nightlife and stuff that's where sort of the, some of the noir stylings comes in come in uh, and stuff when she's there at night and uh it's a really interesting reframing of that uh, so much to say but we need to wrap up I think. of course <laughs> very sad it's been a great show though i'm so happy you got on pablos next week david and i will be yes. back with what romancing the stone i think that's yeah that's that's the one we agree with which is obviously a you know thematically a good mirror to this film oh, uh, yeah thanks for having uh, me guys you want to read us out 
thanks again for tuning in this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos, who, of course, is here this, this week, and Brogan, uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. And Cal's new show. Cal's new show. Yes, yes. And have to start show, working that in, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we, <laughs> we better not do too many shows, otherwise this outro will get out of hand. Why not? Uh, why, why not promote our shows? Rank, ranking the Monsters uh, with uh, Calvin, of course, and our other good friend, Steven. Check that one out. Uh, they got a new one coming up, I think, this next week. Yeah, we got Pacific Rim Cloverfield this week. And uh, what game you guys have this week? You're doing this Portopia? This week we had Portopia Serial Murder Case. That's awesome. right. Um, yep. <laughs> All right. So lots of uh, great Twin Geeks podcast material to check out. So uh, make sure to subscribe, Twin like, Geeks and podcast review all of those. <laughs> That'll be the cast of us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Bye-bye. everyone. Butterfly searching for a relax, pulling from the jazz stacks because it's Sunday. On the air is incense, sounds to the ceiling Trying to get this feeling since Monday Looking out the window, watching all the people go Bugging off a funny vibe, cause now it seems they're equal Wonder what my train say, wonder what my pop say Bugging off the calmness in the apple Who me? I'm cooling in New York, I'm chilling in New York The hoods is on my block, and the brothers at the court The baseball hats is on, and the projects is calm Dream time's extended, and highly recommended